0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My name is Michael Breer and I'm the director of the Melbourne Energy Institute, which is part of the University of Melbourne. Uh, I would like to first welcome everyone here tonight but before I do that I'd like to thank you all for welcoming people from south of the border and not all from south of the border but some from south of the border up here to the beautiful city of Sydney uh, and for your own hospitality to us but also uh, welcome to all of you here tonight and also uh, before progressing this evening's discussion we of course acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand the Gadigal of the Eora Nation and we pay respect to their elders past and present. Uh, Tonight is uh, one of uh, several ongoing public lecture series that the Grattan Institute, represented here tonight by Tony Wood and the Melbourne Energy Institute, have run for quite a while now called our Energy Futures Seminar Series. Um, They've been terrific uh, uh, series of lectures. We've had Kerry and others speak at previous events and we hope that they've made a substantial contribution to the national energy debate. Tonight's uh, 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 seminar is on the National Energy Guarantee, and we have a distinguished bunch of speakers. I'll first hand over to our moderator this evening, Jennifer Hewitt, who'll who'll, uh, introduce the guests and kick off the event. So thank you very much.
0: Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, It's great to be here. Um, as Tony Wood knows all too well, I certainly never claimed to be an expert in the energy field. Uh, I only started writing about it um, oh, several years ago now uh, because I didn't understand my own electricity bill, uh, along with many other people, of course. Uh, but since then, um, it's just become more and more complicated, I think. Um, and, and The more I understood, um, the more I, I, I realised what I didn't understand. Um, so, and that, that process has continued, I mean if you look at the debate five years ago even compared to what it is now, um, it's so much of the uh, things have changed even though um, some of the underlying fundamentals and some of the underlying problems remain the same um, and include cl- that of course includes uh, a lot of the political problems uh, that we all deal with as well and the lack of bipartisanship um, that's gone on now for years and years on this policy. Um, so I think we're very fortunate to have here tonight um, uh, a group of experts um, who will actually, who do understand, they have obviously been involved in the field for a long time, um, but will also can also um, talk about what we're what we're trying to do and what the government's trying to do, uh, what the Energy Security Board is trying to do, um, and uh, a- and whether or not this is actually going to change the dynamics of what has been a pretty. Um, disastrous uh, situation going on for several years. So our speakers tonight, um, we're very pleased to have um, Kerry Schott of course, Chair of the Energy Security Board, uh, Dr Tim Nelson, um, Chief Economist of AGL and uh, Tony Wood, uh, who many of you would uh, certainly know as well. Uh, So we're going to have, each of the speakers is going to give a um, short presentation. And then we'll have um, a Q&A or just a discussion on stage. Uh, and then I'll be sure to leave some time for questions from the uh, audience because I know there will be plenty uh, in what is always uh, a very lively debate and uh, topic. Thanks very much. And now we'll get uh, uh, Kerry shot up.
2: Uh, Thanks, Jennifer. Um, Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming out on a cool evening um, to talk about energy. What I um, thought I'd talk about um, tonight, just to start with, is what's happening in the energy market, because um, it is Disruption City, basically, and everyone's talking about disruption, but there's an enormous amount of change happening, and I just wanted to give you a bit of a picture of what's going on and those of you who are heavily immersed in it will be much more aware of these changes than many others, but I think it's always worthwhile spelling out what the problems are before we start trying to solve them. So um, just starting off with the national electricity market. what it is is basically an electricity market that serves Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and Tassie. It doesn't include WA and Northern Territory because they're not connected into that market. And what happens in this national market is that there's power, um, of course, sold in New South Wales, but New South Wales, for example, also uh, imports power from Queensland and at times exports into Queensland. And we also Um, export and import from Victoria who in turn um, import from Tassie and export to Tassie but mainly import from Tassie and South Australia tends to export wind power into Victoria and they also uh, import power from Victoria when their wind's not blowing so it's actually a grid it's not a very terrific grid because across the state boundaries the connections are really quite thin in places. And if you think about New South Wales, um, the population up in the north of the state around Byron Bay and co has um, been growing very rapidly and there's a strong demand for power up there and that's one of the reasons why Queensland's exporting power into New South Wales. Within each state the transmission lines that are there were put there um, to satisfy where the big coal generators are. Uh, historically, So in New South Wales all the transmission lines uh, that have got a lot of capacity run from the Hunter to Newcastle and Sydney and Wollongong. In Victoria they run from the Latrobe Valley into where the load is. Um, but things are, and similarly in Queensland from the big coal fired generators and some big gas plants to the cities. But things are changing with renewables coming into the system and we need to change the grid in due course to match the fact that we've now got generators that are uh, spread all over the place Um, and in particular where there's good solar and wind resources and as a country we are blessed with very good renewable resources. The other thing that's happening um, as part of this is the coal fleet, the coal fired fleet is gradually ageing and this is uh, This is a chart that the market operator has put together because they like to know when plants are likely to retire. And what this um, chart shows is the first cab off the rank in terms of retirement is Liddell, which is much spoken about. In terms of age, the next one you'd expect to go is Vales Point. Um, In the scheme of things, both those plants are relatively small. Um, A few years later, we're likely to see the retirement of Yallorne and Gladstone. But then in New South Wales, by the time we get to the mid-30s, we're expecting to see the retirement of Araring and Bayswater, and they are really big plants for this state. And then as you sort of stretch out towards the 50s, the coal-fired plants in, um, in Victoria and some of the uh, more aged plants in Queensland will start to retire. So the question then is, what do you do about replacing these? And under the National Energy Guarantee, We are, despite things get reported in the press, we are completely technology neutral and the market can decide what they want to replace these plants with. So they will get replaced by whatever is the most commercial thing to replace them with. And what's been going on in the market in response to all these market things is, um, that there is a lot of wind and solar coming in and a fair bit of gas and some pumped hydro and the darker lines here show the existing plants and the biggest line there is the coal plants uh, some gas, some hydro Um, the yellow and orange are things that are committed uh, wind and solar largely as you can see and things that are proposed so what's tending to happen is that and this is purely driven by economics. As the uh, large coal fleet is retiring, we're starting to get more renewables coming in. And that is an issue uh, for the operator because when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, we've still got to produce enough power uh, to make sure that the system's stable and people have got power, uh, both in their homes and in businesses. Um, And one of the issues that the NEG is designed to address is the fact that as the amount of renewables coming in increases, we've got to make sure we've got enough dispatchable power. And power that you can dispatch any time is either coal or gas or hydro or batteries. Uh, Wind and solar are not um, reliable at every minute of the day. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the wholesale market because in a funny way it exacerbates and amplifies what's happening with this. In the electricity market the companies bid in um, and they um, bid in on this graph every five minutes. Um, If you're a wind or a solar generator your marginal cost is pretty close to zero because wind and sun doesn't cost anything. So you will bid in at a very low price. And what the operator does is they dispatch in a merit order determined by price. So um, the wind and solar would get dispatched first. In this diagram, that sort of light green, which might be gas, um, is dispatched next. And as the demand increases at round about 4.30, when everybody's starting to go home from work uh, and school, um, more expensive uh, forms of power are getting dispatched. So by the time you get to 7 o'clock at night, you'd expect the sun won't be getting dispatched um, unless it's a time zone difference and you're transmitting mm. it across your transmission lines. It might still be very windy, so that would be getting dispatched. Um, and then coal, hydro, gas would make up the rest depending on the company's bidding into the market. Um, it's a very dynamic market, and um, this graph just uh, is a sort of made-up one, but it's from 4 p.m. to 4:30 p.m. on some day, and that's what the what the bids look like and what gets dispatched by the operator. So the other thing that's happening that's really quite disruptive, that's very important, is what's happening on everybody's homes. So everyone is moving, partly driven by the high power bills recently. Um, people are increasingly putting solar panels on their house used to be the case that uh, the house at the bottom of this diagram uh, was just taking power from the grid The next house along put on some solar panels and um, they were just using that to heat up their hot water and weren't doing anything else much with it The next house along has got a battery in and when their battery is fully charged and they are not using as much power as, as they're generating on their roof they want to actually export that power back into the grid so somebody else can use it. So what used to be a network that just had power going in a very simple sort of direction has now got generators all over the place at a very small scale and people wanting to export power back into the grid if they've got batteries. And this is a real um, challenge for networks because a they're not used to this sort of thing, um, but. It's also very good news for them because it means that um, if they can work out how to use this distributed resource, it's probably going to drop the cost of their network down and the experts think could be quite appreciable. So um, this is um, a technology that's really... um, Australia is leading the world in this stuff. Uh, We've got very good um, sun, as, as we all know and the penetration of solar on our homes uh, is much higher than anywhere else in the world. Queensland is fast heading towards 50% of their homes with solar, Um, it's currently somewhere between 20 and 30%, but elsewhere in the country it's happening also. And It doesn't make up a huge amount of the power that the country needs, but it's very important because it tends to be where the load is, so it's in the cities that it's um, most apparent. And this is just a graph that AEMO has put together of the take-up and the expected take-up. And you can see that in 2000, early 2000s, there was hardly any. Um, And uh, where we are now is um, rising rapidly and the various scenarios going forward have got solar panels going up very rapidly. And what is also tending to happen very rapidly is that as batteries are less expensive, People are putting batteries in. So, um, I'll just talk a little bit about the National Ele- Energy Guarantee, the NEG. Um, we're not supposed to call it that apparently, but that's what everybody is calling it. Um, it does. A f- it does. <coughs> it's not intended to do everything, um, but what it is intended to do is make sure we've got a reliable energy supply, that we're reducing emissions and that we're improving affordability and the modelling that we've done on the work we've done so far suggests that uh, it should do those things. Um, What it doesn't do is it doesn't help the operator a lot with trying to keep the system secure and stable. Uh, In the electricity system you've got to have stable voltage and you've got to keep your frequency within a range and you've got to have um, basically a strength in your system that's called inertia. Uh, which coal plants are actually very good at delivering. Um, wind and solar are not so good. So um, the operator is struggling with security issues and we are addressing that through different mechanisms when we get time, once we've got the NEG under control. So um, what we're really looking at is reliable energy and reduced emissions and doing it in an affordable way. And if you think back to what I said first, we've got more renewables coming in, we've got to have dispatchable power. So it's basically about what do we do to make sure we've got that. So the first thing is about the emissions side of things. Um, At the moment uh, there's a register that's uh, uh, kept by an INGERS register, which is an old um, greenhouse emitting register. All the generators are registered. Um, on that and what is registered is what their emissions intensity is. So if you're a power generator, you are on that register and everybody knows what your emissions intensity is. Um, And AEMO keeps data about who's getting dispatched. So at any particular half hour interval, um, AEMO can tell you what the emissions intensity is of the energy that was dispatched at that time. So um, what is going to happen? Um, with this emissions uh, side of affairs is that the Commonwealth government will set um, an emissions intensity target and that target is based on their interpretation of what they need to do to meet the Paris Agreement that they signed. And it's important to understand that the Commonwealth really only has jurisdiction in this space because they've signed an international agreement. So they have signed an international agreement. Tony um, Abbott actually signed it and ironically, um, and that is the um, emissions reduction target. From that, they're deriving an emissions intensity target for electricity. There are two other sectors that are big emitters in the economy, agriculture and transport. Um, The Commonwealth is developing policies about what to do in those sectors, but for electricity, uh, they've got to carry about a third of the Paris Agreement targets. And it starts in 2020, runs out to 2030, and the Commonwealth Government will set a trajectory. And from that trajectory, uh, the industry will know what their emissions intensity is going to be. And what the NEG does, it puts an obligation on the retailers. If you're selling electricity, you know that you have to have an emissions intensity that is a number or lower. So. In this example, we've assumed we've got two retailers and two generators, just to make life easy. Uh, One generator's got zero emissions intensity, so it's wind or solar. And one generator's got 0.8, so say it's a coal generator. If the target's 0.5, each of these retailers have got to balance their load, so they get to 0.5 or lower. And it doesn't mean they have to balance their load in megawatts, they just have to Balance um, their load in the emissions intensity. So they need to basically trade the emissions intensity between each other uh, to get to 0.5 or lower. And in this example, retailer B, who's got a big load there of 120,000, would take 75,000 of the 0.8 and 45,000 of the zeros, which would get them to 0.5. Uh, the detailed work that's going on at the moment is just working out how working out some software basically that can match up the AEMO data with the ENGAS data and um, do it um, pretty much in real time Mm -hmm. and um, suffice to say it's actually not a difficult thing to do but everyone's going to have to get used to um, managing in that world. So that's an obligation on the retailers, they've got to meet an emissions intensity target set by the Commonwealth Government. I might just say in passing that um, the one thing about the NEG that there is disagreement about is the emissions intensity target and you'd be aware that many people think that the target that the Commonwealth is setting is too low. Um, There is no particular reason in a parliamentary democracy why an incoming government with a different view can't change that target. Um, they probably wouldn't want to change it rapidly because it's a capital intensive industry it can't change overnight but an incoming government could change that target it's a legislated target and as you know legislation can change so um, the other thing around emissions that I'll mention just before I leave it is that the states have some states, not this one have um, uh, renewable energy schemes and they're basically schemes that subsidise or either the risk of investing in renewable energy or or else just directly subsidise renewable energy plants. Those schemes can continue and it does have implications for the amount of dispatchable energy those states will need if they start getting to very high renewable um, levels but uh, they can continue to do what they wish to do and states have every right under their law to do that. The other thing that the retailer is being told to do is they've got to have dispatchable power so they've got to, have, they've got to meet a reliability uh, requirement. And the way that we work out from a system point of view whether that's needed or not is for the operator to forecast starting 10 years out coming in to about three years out, and they're forecasting whether in each state um, there's enough power to meet demand at all times, not just during the day. So they make a forecast, they update it, three years out they say to the market, everything's looking okay, or we think we've got a shortfall. if they think there's a shortfall that forecast then gets reviewed by somebody who's not the operator Um, and then 12 months out if the market hasn't moved to fill that gap then AEMO the operator will run an auction to fill that gap and basically become a procurer of last resort because we must keep enough power for business and homes to keep running Um, it's our view at the ESB, it's very unlikely that that last, that third intervention is likely to occur because the market is likely to um, uh, fix, up the, fix up the gap. Now, if it turns out that the forecast's wrong, which as sure as night follows day is likely to be the case, um, then um, if nobody is going to get penalised, if there's no gap, if no gap actually happens, it doesn't matter. But if there is a gap and it's been forecast and it's not met, the retailers who haven't arranged their um, load to meet that gap will get penalised, part of the cost of AEMO having to run this reverse auction. And one of the things that's happening as I speak is there's a lot of people and workshops trying to work out how to get all of this to actually be operational and implemented. What these two things do together is it means that we've got an emissions target and we've got a reliability um, obligation. Both those obligations rest on retailers, but it means that the power system should be reliable and we should meet emissions reduction as set by the Commonwealth Government. And where there are state schemes, they will also be included and the reliability obligation will be a bit higher in those states than it would be otherwise. And just to give you a sense of what's happening out there in the world of electricity, in South Australia uh, there's about 50% renewable energy at the moment. Um, In other states it's considerably less but rising very quickly. And both Victoria and Queensland have quite ambitious um, renewable energy targets. So just next steps, a lot of work going on to get this done. in the middle of June we'll release our um, final draft design paper for everybody to comment on. We've been consulting with the industry and interested people um, very widely on this and we've been getting a lot of help um, from various nerds and industry players. Um, and uh, We have been taking, paying close attention to people's views of things. Um, The final design goes to the COAG Energy Council for approval on the 9th of August Um, and if all goes according to plan the legislation at the Commonwealth level about emissions intensity will go in before the end of the year and there are rule changes needed in the industry um, which because it's a state based rules um, that legislation happens to go through the South Australian Parliament on behalf of all of the states. So that would be done at roughly the same time. So with a bit of luck, um, everything should be completed before Christmas. Um, That's the target. Um, In terms of the general mood at the COAG Energy Council table, I'll just fill you in on that and then stop. There's a great deal of support for this mechanism. And the reason for that is that there's been so much uncertainty in this industry that it actually puts a mechanism in place that shows the way things are going to develop and um, it also means that if you want to set a higher emissions reduction target through having a renew, you know subsidies for renewable energy or something else in your state, you can do that. Um, The quid pro quo is your reliability obligation in that state will go up. That's fine. That's your choice as a state. Everybody else has nationally got to meet the target that the Commonwealth is setting, which is basically their interpretation of what the Paris Agreement means that they've signed. Um, There's disagreement about that target between the political parties, as you might imagine. um, And otherwise, um, people are very interested in seeing if this can work or not. And at the moment, at the Council, um, there's a lot of support uh, for moving forward with this. So that's um, where we're at. Thanks, (coughs) Jennifer.
0: Well, thanks very much, um, Kerry, for a very logical exposition. We can only hope that logic prevails and uh, there is actually a bit of luck by Christmas, but we'll see. Um, In the meantime, I'd like to invite Tim Nelson to come up from AGL and obviously um, I'm not spending a lot of time going through their CVs, but uh, they're all available on, online.
3: Thanks Jennifer and thanks to Grattan for, for hosting. Um, I'm just going to quickly give you some thoughts on some of the things that are going on in the market that um, may lead you to the conclusion that the NEG is actually a really needed and worthwhile uh, policy. So. As we go through this, it's largely uh, largely uh, information, and I will cover off on that um, power station called Liddell. Um, so I think the most important thing, um, that when I think about what the NEG is trying to do, is that it's trying to do something which we should have done a long, long time ago. Um, when the Hilma reforms were first put through, I think it is really important to note that there had already been climate change submissions made to Commonwealth Cabinet. And so the fact that we're only now trying to integrate the two, I think, is, is something which we should all take some responsibility for. I don't think it's just on the government. Um, I think it's industry and I think it's civil society as well. We really should have dealt with this before now. But the other things which are changing is technology. So technology costs have fundamentally shifted from the debate of uh, even five years ago. It is just a fact now that renewables are the cheapest form of energy. And I've made sure that energy there is in italics for deliberate obvious reasons and a lot of it goes to the heart of what Kerry was talking about before. It's energy, it's not necessarily comparable because it's not dispatchable and flexible in the same way that say a gas turbine is. Demand is changing though, and that's the other fundamental aspect that's been missing I think in the the debate and we're only just talking before about um, if you want to get a feel for just how much things have changed. Grab a copy of the um, uh, OWEN report um, on New South Wales generation which is about 10 years old now and you'll see fundamentally um, how if we had have gone down the pathway that most people bought into and said demand's going to be growing quite substantially, let's go and build a whole bunch of very uh, high capacity factor power stations, we'd be having a very different discussion, um, probably a lot like what is going on with some of the network discussions that um, are happening today. So we know that significant new investment is required, but it's required not just because of climate change reasons. It's required for the very reason that Kerry talked about before. Um, These power stations in our market were built um, decades ago, and they're starting to come to the end of their operating life. Two key facts here, only 1% of power stations globally are operating beyond a 50-year age life. And the second thing is around 3 quarters of the thermal fleet um, is now beyond its original technical engineering um, design life. So we were going to have to have this discussion irrespective of the climate change imperative. This is designed, I guess, to give you a bit of a feel for the way in which the market is changing. And you'll have to kind of bear with me because it's a little bit convoluted and and difficult to follow. But if you think about what the market looks like without, say, the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales, the orange line there is the way in which demand um, looks like today. And what we've tried to do is just give you a bit of a feel for Peak demand is expected to remain pretty robust, but the area under that demand curve is expected to decline. And if you look above you, you can probably see great opportunities that the state library will probably take up in the sense of improving energy efficiency here. That will happen progressively all the way through the economy. No one's expecting um, energy demand, and I use that term energy um, deliberately, no one's expecting energy demand to grow in the same way that it has historically. So if you think through... The addition of renewables at the bottom end of that uh, supply stack and then you've got that uh, incumbent coal that's left post uh, uh, Liddell and for the purposes of this exercise it's assumed that Liddell is not no longer there in 2022 you've got some gas you've got some OCGT it leads you to the conclusion that the type of plant you need in this market to complement those renewables coming in is quick start flexible uh, dispatchable plant and to Kerry's point before, that can be hydro, it can be gas plant, it can also be uh, battery storage um, or uh, physical storage such as pumped hydro. And so this piece of research was in the Electricity Journal recently, um, and what we were trying to do is to demonstrate that without the Liddell power station, um, the market still doesn't need more what you would call base load supply, and baseload is a demand concept, it's not a supply concept. Um, but what it's saying is, is we really need more of that peaking capacity. So what the NEG's trying to do um, is it's basically trying to provide these incentives to both reduce emissions but also to make sure we've got the right uh, infrastructure in place uh, to meet demand at the lowest possible cost uh, for consumers. So a little observation about how the NEG, even though it's not in place, is already driving innovation. Uh, one of the things which um, Kerry uh, mentioned was the fact that in South Australia, 50 per cent of the energy now is renewable. Um, But by definition, the way in which our market uh, was set up uh, with the forward derivatives market, that 50% of energy is not traded through those forward derivative markets. What we're starting to see now are renewable players and other players in the market starting to bring contract types to the market that allow renewables to be traded in the same way that uh, gas plant and coal plant can be traded. Like anything, it just involves pricing risk. Um, And this particular product is in and around how you price um, the risk of the wind being there or not being there. But uh, we're also aware that uh, solar products are coming into the market in the same way that this this wind product came in. But a word of caution, um, and I I, I use that um, term deliberately again. Um, There are two types of peak demand. So when we're thinking about what the the NEG is trying to do, it's trying to elegantly price each megawatt and megawatt hour based upon its unique characteristics so for the emissions characteristic those low emissions generators are effectively getting a little kick along but likewise those firm dispatchable generators are getting a little kick along because of their unique characteristics of being able to meet that reliable uh, supply um, characteristic. So what this slide's doing is it's basically saying there are two types of peak demand. The first is average peak demand so the type of peak demand you'd get in an average year. Hot, hot days in summer but not the persistent prolonged heatwave events that you might see um, in those one in every 10 or say so one in every 20 years. And that's the type of demand that you can see there, what I'm calling DP1. And so the supply curve you can see, it makes sense for investors to put infrastructure on the ground to build um, infrastructure that's gonna get used most of, most of the time. Where it doesn't make sense those say a one in 10 year um, heatwave event that you're basically building a piece of infrastructure that only gets used once in 10 years. And if you go to say a one in 50 year probability, you're building a piece of infrastructure that only gets turned on um, once every 50 years. So supply side solutions are likely to be the way to go for that average summer peak. Um, and there'll be a lots of focus on new types of products, swaps, caps, these new wind firm solar firm types of products. Um, and I think that for that reliability obligation, it's really important that it's light handed because, to Kerry's point, if no one anticipates that it's ever going to be triggered, the last thing we want to do is go and incur a whole bunch of costs associated with complying with something that we don't actually anticipate will be triggered because the market will deliver that response. But I think there's a different response that's going to be required for these very low probability, high consequence events. And I think that's where demand response is going to come into its, um, into its own right. So demand response is one of these types of things that's been talked about a lot, but I think you're going to see more and more focus on it as the most economic solution um, for retailers in the way that they comply um, with the NEG. And I will leave it there. Thank you.
0: Well, Tim, we didn't we didn't get into Liddell particularly, but I'm sure that will come up in, uh, in uh, questions. <laughs> uh, so now I'd like to call on Tony Wood. Thanks.
4: Thanks, Jennifer. I'm going to um, concentrate a little bit on a couple of other issues that haven't been so much touched upon um, in the two previous presentations. And I'm going to talk a little bit about politics and policy because it's fun and because energy is political and if you think energy is not political or you think it would be better if it wasn't political then you shouldn't be participating in this debate in a sense because it is and will be for a long time yet so you've got to think about this what i'm going to talk a little bit more about is the political environment in which a lot of this stuff is playing out and the issues that businesses like agls or people who are trying to influence the policy environment in which this plays out like kerry are having to deal with these political structures. And so when you look at um, one question is, well, why, how did this national energy guarantee actually come about in the first place? Why have we suddenly got this thing that people are saying is going to cure all known disease when we never heard of it a year ago? So why suddenly is this all happened? Well, there's a short history, I won't, and I'll give you that one rather than the long history because Tim went even further back. but. Um, About a year ago now, almost a year ago, the Finkel Review was doing its work and Alan Finkel developed a pretty comprehensive blueprint for how do you deal with security and reliability in the electricity market. Um, That followed, of course, the, the blackout in South Australia, which gave people the concerns that there was a problem of security and reliability. There were different parts of the media. One of those media organisations that that Jennifer works for said very clearly in their analysis, they reported on the analysis by AEMO that renewables was clearly not the cause of that problem. Another part of the media said renewables clearly was the cause of the problem. So you sort of see the dynamic that plays out in terms of the politics of this. So the trick was that Alan Finkel, in looking at the uh, challenges of emissions, Decided that he needed to recommend an emissions policy, and he recommended a thing called the Clean Energy Target. Um, the problem with that was that the economic modelling that he had done, um, which was uh, to try and support the analysis. We will finish collecting material from our storage in 20
1: minutes. <laughs> if so anybody's got start any start library books to put <laughs> away, <Yeah. laughs>
4: and if you ha- don't give your books the back, you're not leaving. Okay, so. The problem was that the modeling that Alan Finkel had done was, it was done for him showed that by 2030 we'd have 40, 42% renewable energy. Now 42% rounded up as 50% and 50% is the Labor Party policy. So clearly that must be unacceptable policy and so that was ditched completely. And so the government said it would support all the other p- recommendations of the Finkelview except the 50th and that became one of the challenges. In the meantime, however, one of the recommendations of the Finkel review is to establish the Energy Security Board. Now, the Energy Security Board is two people, two very smart people, two very experienced people, one of whom is Kerry here tonight and the other is the other independent um, director is or deputy chair is Claire Savage. The other three directors are the heads of the market body. So one of the challenges for Kerry is to herd the other three to try and make sure they behave themselves and deal with the sort of outcome that we need. But in the meantime, she gets distracted because the Energy Security Board says, oh, we've got a solution." to the problem of the Finkel review, we'll come up with this concept called the National Energy Guarantee, because not only did Alan not really um, not, not come up with a politically acceptable emissions reduction policy, he also really didn't get to the heart of this concern about reliability. He, he, he talked about a concept called the generator reliability obligation, but never really defined what that would be, and so that um, was left somewhat open. And so what we've now ended up is the situation where we have these two obligations that um, Kerry's talked about. One of the interesting things, of course, is that um, the fundamental idea of this National Energy Guarantee, and even though for for a time there it was forbidden, formally forbidden in Canberra to call it the NEG, um, I've noticed recently the minister now calls it the NEG so we can. Um, (laughs) Your judgment is whether the NEG's actually a NAG, of course, so we'll see. Um, Interestingly, it was rapidly endorsed by the Commonwealth as being an answer to some of their their concerns about finding a way through this. And one of the reasons for that is because they did quite quickly get it through the coalition party room. Now that is not a trivial uh, achievement, given how difficult it has been to get anything that looks like an energy or climate policy through the coalition party room. So they did that successfully. And with caveats, and Tim's mentioned some of these already, industry, um, both the consumer side of the energy industry and the producer side of the energy industry broadly want this to work. Now, they have their caveats, but they want this to work, and I'll come back to why. Is the NAG good policy? Well, um, integrated energy and climate change is certainly a good thing, and and Tim made that point very strongly. It's very overdue. It may, in fact, be a world-first initiative, because not many other governments around the world have got to the point of fundamentally grappling with the changes we're talking about and some of the changes that um, Kerry described it does combine the responsibilities of not only Josh Frydenberg, the federal minister, but also we have state ministers like Lili D'Ambrosia who are responsible for both uh, energy and climate change. It's not first best policy. Many economists, I'm not an economist, would argue that there are at least four or five better policies than this for emi- reducing emissions, but we've mostly taken them off the table. Now, Kerry described something on the emission side, which I think was somewhat interesting, when she talked about those two retailers who might have contractual positions and they might very well um, engage in financial transactions to balance up their exposure to their renewable energy obligations or their emissions reduction obligation. Let's be very careful in this room, this is not trading. This is engaging in financial transactions. You've got to get the language correct, otherwise you'll be in serious trouble with our political leaders in Canberra. The fact that it might be a secondary trading market develop in this um, is a secret that you should not talk about outside this room. And I need everybody to promise that, otherwise I'm in real trouble. Um, but the core principles of this thing are sound and sensible. They're not all that complicated in a sense. What they're really saying is we've, we've got two externalities. One is the market doesn't price the environment and the responsibility of governments to internalize that externality and put a price on the environment effectively. Now we don't talk about carbon pricing, of course, again, that's another term that's now been outside the lexicon of, 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 of speak in this area. And the other one is that the market question does the market really is the market able to put a value on reliability and develop the, in, the, the, the um, investment we need. Now, in some ways, the reliability side of the guarantee, and you've heard both Kerry and uh, Tim talk about this, is almost designed not to be needed. Because in some ways, the very idea that the AEMA would intervene in the market, have to as the um, procurer of last resort, and then charge those who didn't meet their obligation for what they did should provide an incentive for those retailers not to have to have that happen to them. And so in some ways it's like well, I've got this really big stick and I've designed it really well but I'm not, if, if you know that you don't want to be hit with it then you'll make sure you don't. And that was, that's the way this may very well play out. Now the politics of this guarantee are tricky. There is genuine debate around the emissions target, for good reason. I mean, many people would say it's not enough to meet, um, it certainly is not enough to meet our, even our existing emissions target, let alone uh, what has to come after the existing Paris Agreement and that sort of debate which will play out. Um, we need, we're gonna need to move on that reasonably quickly. Um, and there are other things associated with it. For example, the states may hold out for something called additionality. Some of the states would argue, well, if we're gonna have renewable energy and in say in Victoria, and you lazy bastards in New South Wales are not, why should we do all the heavy lifting? That's an interesting argument. Queensland may say the same thing. On the other hand, when you think about it, if Queensland is allowing uh, LNG production to go ahead and that's producing more emissions, why shouldn't they be obliged to do more rather than less? So I don't think it's a simple question um, that that is a simple answer to the question that those states are raising. So this is gonna be important. The issue I think will be tricky is how the question of scalability is built into the legislation. I absolutely agree with Kerry that the way it's designed is such that someone else can turn up the dial, but how they they will do that and how quickly they'll be able to do that. To move, say for example, from the current target, which is 26% reduction in emissions by 2030, to the Labor Party target, which is 45% reduction in emissions by 2030, will be a challenge. So that detail may very well decide whether this gets support. Now I'm hoping that we'll find a way through that, because I also think Federal Labor would like to be able to support this so that if they do get elected, they'll be able to pick up a policy that was introduced by the coalition party and say, well, you can hardly try and throw this out of the Senate if it's your policy that we've now adopted. So I think that's why the politics right now, it seems to me, are favoring getting this through, although there are some interesting tensions. And the only issue then is going to be is, um, you know, what are going to be the, uh, uh, the, the hurdles over which this has to be done? And that's where the politics are going to play out as much as the detail about the, you can the mechanisms of the sort of things that Kerry was talking about. Um, so the only l- last thing I'd say is, well, what happens if this doesn't work? What if the neg gets rejected? Well, there's a few things. Firstly, a lot of people are going to be seriously pissed off. Uh, I'm not just Kerry uh, for having done all this hard work. There's going to be uh, industry broadly rightly should be appalled at such an outcome. Um, if we allow the perfect to get in the way of the not so bad, um, then we will be seriously in trouble because we'll be back where we were in 2008 nine when the Greens managed to conspire with Kevin Rudd and possibly with Tony Abbott and his, his arguments with Malcolm Turnbull to... Hope for some demand something better than what was on the table and get nothing at all. That is not an outcome we need. Um, secondly, AEMO has made it very clear, very clear, that if they don't get this, they need something else, that more or less does the same thing in relation to reliability, because they are concerned about, as they look ahead, understanding what's gonna be there to replace the, the, uh, those, those plants that are gonna close, and you've heard both Kerry and Tim talk about those closures. We'll have no climate policy beyond 2020. The RET finishes up pretty well in terms of growing stuff in 2020. We may have some state-based policies. And there, of course, will be a real risk if it doesn't get through now that an incoming Labor government, as I said before, despite the fact that it would then go and introduce some policy that will have to do more of the same things anyway. It may be called something different. It may even be called the trading scheme. Um, But it may have trouble getting that through uh, what could easily be a very hostile coalition and a very hostile Senate. And again, I don't think we should be banking our future on the idea that labor should get this done. And we've also got some big questions, like for example, how will companies under this arrangement invest in things like picking plants that have to run only small percentages of the time, as Tim suggested, and maybe in the future when governments look at how the price mechanisms that will have to be used to the pricing levels that would provide the incentive for those sort of investments to be made, like in gas peaking plants, they may they may balk at those. And we've seen that happen overseas and we introduce some form of what's called the capacity market. Now, I'm not going to get into that at the moment, but there are some really interesting consequences if this doesn't get through, and I, for one, am hoping that we can find a way through. I think the the momentum is on the side of doing it, but I think there is some equally, I would just hope that the political short-termism doesn't get in the way of what is fundamentally a very important step in for the You know, we've been circling this mountain now, I've forgotten, I mean, Tim's mentioned 18, 1989, I was only two years old then, I think. Um, not quite. But um, we've been circling this mountain for a long time. We might actually, in 2018, begin to climb the mountain. Thank you.
0: Of uh, the timetable there, uh, but we'll we'll see. Um, one of the things, obviously, is is uh, very obvious that the um, uh, politics, as Tony described, has been um, rather poisonous as this, and now we've got the. Um, I didn't realise it was actually banned to call it the neg. Um, yeah. uh, I hate acronyms, but in this case, uh, it's probably a good idea to call the the neg the uh, the potential um, antidote. But of course, uh, we've talked a lot about um, you know reliability and meeting e- emissions reductions targets. I, I think it'd be fair to say that most of the speakers on this panel have talked less, or certainly I heard less about affordability, which of course is the key political hu- um, hurdle that's coming up. So I know Kerry that you've said yes um, that you know uh, this will this will kind of put downward pressure. I think is the is the usual way of putting it on prices. But in fact, there's a lot of, particular industry, but it, but everyone's screaming, saying, look, the current prices are just not good enough. And and exactly what do you mean by lower prices or just more of the same? And for example, Tim, I think the replacement for Liddell is um, $83 or something is your estimate of a me- megawatt hour on average. I mean, that's about where it is now. So that's, that's not saying that prices are actually going to get lower. I, are we unrealistic? Is the population, are the politicians unrealistic in thinking that prices actually can return to anything like they were, or do we always have to look for a much higher price? Kerry?
2: Uh, Well, the early modelling um, that we did on the NEG, before we get into all the sort of detailed stuff that's happening now, um, suggested that wholesale prices would come down quite substantially, and um, $120, that sort of number, Um, you have to understand why prices went up in the first place because partly it was because wholesale prices went up because of the high price of gas and coal both going up and new coal contracts being written and and both those fuel costs went up. Um, But the other thing that drove prices up, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland, was very high network um, increases and uh, that was basically driven by the government setting a standard for... Um, how often you can bear to have your power cut, and they raised that standard and it led to a whole lot of investment and, and very hefty price increases um, for all of us so that now when you look at the bill, you you know practically shudder and start thinking about solar panels. So um, we're confident with the NEG that the wholesale part of the bill will come down and, in fact, uh, the market's already... Um, Thinking that this is going to be okay, and the wholesale prices are coming down and have come down quite substantially. Not 120 bucks, but w- at least we're headed in the right direction.
0: Tim?
4: Yeah, th-
3: the only thing that I'd add is that um, we're going through at the moment a disorderly transition. So uh, a few years ago, um, myself and a couple of um, co authors had a paper in an Australian journal talking about the nature of. Um, the NEM being a commodity market and the fact that as more renewables came in because of the effectively zero short-run marginal cost you would get to the point where capacity that is firm not so much flexible but certainly dispatchable would suddenly exit the market and that's what we've seen actually play out that we've had um, fairly significant amounts of megawatts come out with very little notice so I think that the the NEG is a wonderful mechanism um, uh, for bringing in new supply, but the other thing we need to manage more effectively into the future is this notice period for large amounts of generation coming out of the market. And I know the AMC has got for as put forward a, a rule change on that that particular issue. So for people who've got views on that, they should certainly put forward their views. So I think when it comes to thinking about um, the bill that the consumer pays, the first is that wholesale component, and I. I share a lot of what uh, share a lot of views that, that Kerry just um, put forward. That the more supply you bring into this market, the more you're going to see um, those average prices. And and the reason it's important to talk about average prices is because with very high penetration renewable systems, you get to this point where the spot price becomes a very efficient dispatch engine. So you'll get long periods of very low prices, but by definition, you'll then have in the spot market. Um, some periods of very high prices and it's the average price that's important because that's the price that the consumer um, is effectively seeing through the price risk mitigation instruments that the retailer sources on their behalf so I think more supply we see coming into the market the less we're going to see um, of the scarcity dynamics playing out that we've seen in the past couple of years the other thing which I I think is really important is um, the energy efficiency dynamic Um, certainly as a business we're starting to see more and more customers deploying energy efficiency in a way that they haven't done before and that's a consequence to the the higher pricing environment so I think you're going to see more and more discussion about the bill, not so much the price Um, but I I couldn't agree more that unless the industry starts putting forward some solutions that deals to this affordability issue then we're going to continue to see customers being um, pretty upset Mm.
4: Tony Yeah, I I, I must admit I'm a uh, one of the areas I'm particularly not pessimistic about but sceptical about is people who say prices are going to come down or be lower or be lower than they would have been or whatever particular f- terminology they use to try and make a point. And part of it's built on economic modelling, which by definition is always wrong. Um, and you know, look at some of the stuff, right? I mean, get a couple of examples. Um, in Victoria, uh, they, the, the, the owners of the Hazelwood power station, the 1600 megawatts, a reasonably large power station. Um, go five months' notice that they were going to close that plant. There was an enormous debate as to what this was going to do to reliability and price. Now, our view was that it would do very little to reliability because there was actually a significant overhang of enough capacity in this market, and except in those extreme circumstances Tim was talking about, to make sure there was you no know, problem with reliability. And that's proven to be true. The question on price, however, was that people were worried about this, that they'd be seen to not have managed this properly, so that to tell everybody the prices weren't going to go up by very much. It's okay, don't worry. Four percent, five percent, maybe eight. Guess what? Nineteen. Nineteen, and that's five months. Um, that sort of economic modelling, 10, 15 years out, seems to be very problematic. So when I look at what's being proposed, in terms of five, ten billion dollars for Snowy Hydro 2.0, the amount of transmission that has to be built to get all this renewable energy from where the sun and wind are, is to where the people are, unless you want to move to Alice Springs, seems to me that, like there's a big bill coming, and someone's going to have to pay for it. And I think we've also had the benefit for a long time in Australia of a lot of capacity that was built very significant scale, world-scale efficiency back in the 90s and 70s and 80s, which has now got to the point of retirement that Tim is talking about. And a lot of that overcapacity, which drove down, kept down the price of, wholesale price of electricity for a long time is going out of the market. And when that happens, prices start to move up and new stuff costs more, more than old stuff. So I just struck. I, I do agree that I can. say $120 was probably people taking advantage of particular circumstances and very high gas prices. But I fail to see how we're going to see prices coming down much below the sort of numbers we're seeing today. And what worries me, seriously worries me, is politicians who promise the opposite.
0: Tim, um, and, and of course we've seen a bit of the promise for the opposite. Um, I will get you to talk about Liddell now um, as well. Um, you know they're, they're still going to be saying that your plans are. are going to actually cause problems in terms of pricing um you know you can you can disagree on that but i mean in in, to 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 tony's point in general um i think it's it's fine for people to say look you know this will have a gradual effect on prices or they won't go up as much as they were but it still it doesn't make people happy how do you how do you convince people that actually um this is this is going to be a better system
3: Well, i mean if you're looking at the, the economics of it, the, the price over the course of the business cycle has to recover all of the costs that um, a generation proponent is putting forward or they won't keep investing. So, if you look at the, the costs that have been put forward um, today, I think that um, the Finkel review, and I'm going off memory, so, so um, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it talked about the levelised cost of a coal fired power station at about $82 if you had to build it today and operate it in five years' time. Now, that's $82 if the power station comes on and then runs flat out. Its unit cost goes up, um, the less it runs. Um, So I think one of the things that that Tony's at, and in your books. been heckled before, never like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So I think that the discussion that um, we needed to have was that at some point, prices in the market, at least in the wholesale market, we're going to need to return to levels that looked a little bit more like long-run marginal cost and not short-run marginal cost on average, and I use again that term because throughout the year, they'll be at different points at different times. Um, John Quiggan, I know, is... um, Uh, a bit of a controversial figure in the literature around um, the economics of energy in Australia, but he did make the very good point early on in the Hilma reforms that to some extent, the low prices were merely a transfer from an overinvestment by state governments to a market-based outcome. And I think that moving forward, it, it doesn't help looking back in time and saying, well, the price in 2001 was $35, therefore the price today should be $35. I think it's important that we as a community, have that upfront discussion around whatever the technology is we're looking at today, the Finkel review tells you it's going to be in that 80 odd dollar, um, a megawatt hour price range. And that's just one of those those facts in the debate that I think we all just need to, to acknowledge.
0: Well uh, Kerry, you got into uh, trouble with some of the coalition ministers recently by, by saying what you thought was a fact about um, it just wasn't worth for coal generators I think to they couldn't compete. Um, with, with, the, with the level of um, wind and solar now in terms of uh, being an investment proposition. Um, so how, how do you kind of manage to avoid inflaming the politics when, when you think you're just kind of speaking, uh, speaking
2: facts? <laughs> well, um, just in terms of um, sort of relative prices, the, um, the costs that are in the Finkel review uh, for wind and solar, uh, just in the sort of twelve months or so, those costs have come down appreciably, and um, the the costs per megawatt of providing sort of wind or solar power are just um, a you'll get into the bid stack straight away as long as you've got power. But the other the other thing is it's relatively cheap to put those plants up. But the one thing. Um, The one thing that we haven't spoken about is demand. And I've said before, but coming into this industry from the water industry, it is really shocking how badly demand's been managed. And I'm sort of starting to understand why that is because it's different institutional arrangements. But one of the things that the NEG does do is it encourages um, demand management because you don't have to um to to meet the reliability standard you d- you don't just have to meet it by building a generator and fronting up you can meet it by arranging to have demand cut and that doesn't mean turning off everybody's lights at you know an hour when when or turning off air conditioning when it's needed but it does mean that you can get a group of people together and there are aggregators in the market now sort of aggregating um use and getting agreement from those users that they will cut demand if asked at particular times and they get paid for that. So as long as people um, get recompense Mm -hmm. for cutting demand, particularly at those peak periods on 42 degree days when the operator really does need demand cut, um, we should see more of that and I think that will be very helpful.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable isn't how, how little attention was paid to that for so long in this industry. Um, but one of the things about, um, about the NEG uh, has been one of the criticisms or concerns about the NEG is that it would actually um, only consolidate the power of, of the big players now, uh, players like AGL for example. So h- how do you plan to counter that or, or is, is it really um, so much of a problem anyway as uh, some would suggest?
2: and the competition issue is actually um, something for Rod Sims to address. And he's got a report coming out in June and will no doubt address it. Um, but what we've wanted to do with the NEG is make sure that we don't hamper competition at all. And we had a lot of feedback from smaller retailers, um, quite worried about getting hammered by some of the big bigger players and it is a real concern for them that market power will be used against them. So we've had a look at that. Um, We're now getting some concern from the larger players saying don't punish us because we're actually not doing what everybody thinks we're doing. Um, And what it all boils down to in the NEG is when you have to front up and show that you've got enough dispatchable power. Um, what we need to see to check that is to be transparently able to look at contracts. And that level of transparency is going to increase the transparency in the market for some of the players. So if things are transparent and everybody is treated fairly, I think we'll get over this and everybody will sort of look at it and think, well, it's not a bad cop. But we're in the process of going through trying to work out what's fair as far as the board's concerned and then we'll go out for consultation in the middle of June and no doubt hear every opinion about that that we're seeking.
0: Well of course in fact I think one of the AGL executives Tim called it a a Trojan horse uh, against the whole concept of vertical integration. Do you agree with that?
3: Um, I think it all comes down to your interpretation of one line in the discussion paper and um, as is always the case people will have their own view on um, which way things are going to go. But the line talks about a centrally cleared exchange um, and or a central repository. Now, I think most people in the industry would say that a central repository sounds pretty light-handed. You know, it's a case of um, open up your arrangements as per what Kerry was talking about. I, I think where um, people like like Brett have, have raised concerns is that And again, it comes back to what Kerry was saying before, that there's still time to design this in a way that overcomes any of these issues. But you could see a situation where you put individual companies in a little bit of an uncomfortable position whereby they're trading on both sides um, of of a transaction and under various types of corporations' law and other things, that puts them in an uncomfortable position in the sense of market manipulation and those types of things. So I think that... The desire here is the right desire, which is that should the the reliability um, component be triggered, then that ability for not just the ESB, but for everyone to say, well, okay, so here's how Entity X has formulated what it's done and at this particular price, I think most people agree that's not a bad outcome, it's just how it really gets implemented.
0: Tony?
4: If you look at the the gas industry, it's been accused of being dominated by bilateral secret commercial contracts. Uh, and the risk that people are worried about is the g- electricity industry goes that way at the same time as the gas industry is trying to look more like the electricity industry by having spot markets and exposed prices. So what the tension here is around how much of the pricing structures and contractual arrangements, because as you go from a wholesale spot market, and you know, you can get on the email website, you can go, you can get download an app. And look, right now, what the wholesale spot price is in New South Wales, Victoria and so forth. That, that's it. That's public. What you don't know is all the contractual arrangements that are sitting behind that. Now, if we move towards more and more contracts and less of the revenue is traded through that sp- wholesale visible spot market and more through contracts, that's where people start to get worried about it looking more like that secret commercial um, bilateral arrangements. And so that's what Kerry's trying to do is trying to produce something that provides greater transparency, but if you go to the one extreme of that, you end up uh, basically breaking up the model, which is AGL Origin and Energy Australia and other integrated retailers who've done that to manage risk. And So this is a, I think it's going to be a carefully calibrated issue. I don't think we'll get it precisely right, the issue will be to get it roughly not too wrong and then, and then gradually work with this over the next little while because even though there's a lot of detailed working groups now being put together by Kerry and her, and her fellows, her colleagues, f- from the companies, not just the big companies like AGL, but even the small guys who are complaining about this, to sit in a room and work through how is this gonna affect us? How will it actually work in practice? That I hope will expose some of the issues that um, people are concerned about, that Kerry's working on, and that even AGL are concerned about at the other extreme. So out of that, I think we've still got some real prospects of something that will work. Um, we won't get it right first time, but I think we're going to have to be a little bit patient and not just um, assume once we've got it more or less right, it's okay. There's going to be a need to refine this thing over the next year, as we have done with most of these big chains. This is a pretty significant change. It's worth the effort.
0: Yeah. Now, there's also uh, got a, a bit of skepticism about the level of investment that this will produce. I mean, I know in, it, you're talking solar and wind is that, that's looking extremely healthy, but things like gas peaking plants and things like that, the type of investment um, that, that will be required. Um, and also how you, how you, as, as Tony pointed out earlier, how you get a return on that, on that investment given it's only going to be used, um, well certainly not going to be used all the time, will only be used uh, uh, maybe occasionally, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, Kerry, how, how do you think that goes?
2: Well, one of the things that the NEG does is, if it looks as if there's a shortfall in dispatchable power um, in the market, the price will, the spot prices will start going up, and that will um, serve as a um, signal that investment's needed. And um, basically, we're setting up a system where dispatchability is given a particular value. And at the moment in the market, that's not the case. So we're trying to value um, power that's firm and is there when the operator needs it, whether and whether it's battery or gas or whatever.
0: T- Tim, so you see yourself investing quite adequate amounts in, in that type of gas peaking?
3: I mean, the investment's actually happening today. So if you look at um, South Australia, you've got the um, Barker Inlet power station that AGL's um, got underway. I mean, that's a reciprocating engine, so it's not a conventional open cycle gas turbine like a lot of the things that have gone in. And that's, again, a response to changing technology and changing market conditions, changing rule design. So with the introduction of uh, the five-minute settlement proposal by the uh, the AEMC, those quick start reciprocating engines are a a better technology in that type of market. So we're seeing that the, the, the investment coming in I think, to Tony's point earlier, this is a, a real confidence issue, and as I look around the room today, I won't point them out, but I can see plenty of bankers in the room. Um, there's a lot of people keen to see this land, because it'll just inject that confidence into, I can now get on with uh, making the investments that go to the heart of providing those services that Kerry was talking about. At the moment, just the lack of clarity around, particularly the emission side of things beyond the RET, which Tony alluded to earlier makes it a little bit challenging. That The only other observation though that I would make is that having been in this industry for a while now, at every single iteration of the RET, all the way back to the MRET, there was just this constant dynamic of, oh, no, no, we couldn't build that much, no, it'll, it'll never get built. And then every single time the industry has just delivered. And so I think that with the right policy in place, um, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful to Tony's point that all of these l- my, relatively minor issues can be worked through in the design of the NEG. We come out the other side, we've got confidence to get on and deliver what um, everyone's after.
0: Um, uh, Kerry talked uh, quite a lot about the rooftop solar um, and it is growing, as she said, You know, enormously. It's still only 2 to 3% of the, of the market, even if it doubles um, in the next couple of years. That's not going to be that much. It also has impacts... Um, you know, on, on terms of the, the, the networks' um, viability, doesn't it? I mean, you, you said it would be good for the networks. W- what do you think, Tony?
4: Um, in ultimately, the most, most likely outcome it will be good for the networks. Now, in some parts, it will challenge the, the grid, the fringes of the grid, particularly, where um, in, in rur- rural and regional Australia, um, I think quite strongly there'll be cases where there'll be a change in the way that we p- currently provide electricity. Um, you know, there'll be cases where Somewhat peculiarly, there will be opportunities where solar, batteries, maybe even diesel generators will become part of the system, because diesel generators, despite the fact that they're pretty nasty things in many ways, actually turn out to be for peaking requirements much cheaper than a lot of other things, and other parts of the world have found that. I think the networks, you know, we've got a funny In in a way, what we're finding in situations, we are becoming an electric economy, more and more. I think the, the, we do not really have a handle on what the underlying value of electricity is. I think one of the realities is actually, despite the fact for many for people on low incomes, this has become a bit of a nasty problem. For some in industries who are faced with high costs, it's a nasty problem. But for the vast majority of Australians, it's not a big problem, actually. The value of electricity in our modern life exceeds the cost by a long way, and that's a very tricky problem in a sense. To how do you deal with it? And so when you look at an electric economy where electricity is not only empowering all the manufacturing and all the lights and all the other stuff, but it's also Im- it's empowering, it's powering the information age. It's powering the very um, mass data that we talk about. Big data is electricity, and so the role of electricity is changing dramatically, and the role of the grid to Move that electricity around is going to change a lot, so the value of the grid will be very different. The way it's paid for has to be different, otherwise we'll get it wrong. Uh, At the moment, all that solar in the middle of the day, it doesn't matter how cheap it is. It doesn't matter if it's free, because nobody wants it. In the middle of Brisbane, where you've got 50% solar, the system can't deal with it anymore. You've got to store it in a battery or something else, right? So that's the changes we're going to have to see, and if the grid gets it right, and if our pricing structures get it right, then we'll start to see a real change in the way the the grid works. And I think the grid has a very robust future, but it'll be a different future, and that sometimes that change is challenging for everybody.
0: Now, I could keep on asking questions, but I did promise um, time for um, questions from the audience, and I uh, apologise we are running just a little bit of ahead of time. So I'll, I'll call on you, but please keep your questions short and, and try to avoid making statements. That's what the people on the panel are for. Um, the gentleman over there in the corner.
1: Uh,
4: Thanks Jennifer for pointing out that affordability wasn't covered. This is the fourth event I've been to on the National Energy Guarantee where the first slide has had the three policy problems of reliability, emissions and affordability and then affordability hasn't been mentioned for the rest of the event. Um, My concern, and uh, and it's a question, is around specific targets. So we're now gravitating to a situation where we're getting very specific uh, numbers around emissions targets, we're getting very specific technical detail and specific measures around reliability, but there doesn't seem to be any specific targets or KPIs or anything for affordability. And We know from the way that organizations work, and we've seen this recently from the banks and finance industry, if those specific targets are not built into this, it will be overlooked. It will be a battle between reliability and missions, and affordability will go out the window.
2: Um, Once we've got the details of this sorted out, we will do more modelling, um, which will inform us more about price. But the previous modelling that we did um, um, did suggest that prices would come down and come down significantly in the wholesale market, which is uh, the market that the NEG is focused on. Um, It is actually... Um, The reason why we don't address it first up is that uh, it comes out of the way that the market works and we think the market is going to work better with the NEG and things are going to get valued properly. Um, And that's all the evidence supporting and it is going to value demand uh, and demand reduction which is going to be a big help. Question over here.
1: Howard Witt, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, Tony did mention the words once, but it was the only time I heard it, Snowy 2.0, and also generally storing electricity with pumped hydro or whatever. Um, Now this is a big infrastructure spend. Uh, I'd like to hear the panel's opinion on Snowy 2.0 and how it will fit in with um, your schemes.
2: Um, I think the um, jury's still out on Snowy too in that the Commonwealth Government that, as you know, now owns Snowy is doing feasibility studies and there are lots of feasibility studies going on about where the transmission lines that go with it might go and feeding into all of that. So it's not it's not something that um, is sort of on my desk being looked at. It's being looked at by other people. So I'll, I'll wait and see where that ends up. Uh, Tim
0: or Tony?
3: Oh, look, the only thing I'd add is, is that I think um, investment in storage of any, of any kind is is worthwhile. The only thing that I'd kind of caveat that with is as long as it's on commercial terms with comparable alternatives. So you'd want to make sure that like-for-like um, like investments are being made with comparable um, financing terms, um, because the new technologies you're seeing coming into the market, whether they be batteries or other proponents, private sector proponents of pumped hydro, you want to make sure they're all competing on a level playing field.
4: I just add, add one thing to that, and that is that we've been talking a little bit about the concerns about large integrated generator retailers. Well, the government is now one, the Commonwealth government, and we will wait with some degree of scepticism to see whether they do what Tim is just describing and behave on not what would you call normal commercial grounds. The evidence is that government electricity business do not do that, and in Queensland we've seen the evidence of the way the Queensland government has dealt with its generators. We would not like to say the same thing happen here. Because if you want to see one way of scaring off investors, that's to have entities in the market who are basically acting on, meca- on policy descriptions, that are p- policy-driven things that are actually coming from the politics, and that would be, I think, unfortunate. So if it turns out to be a great idea, then I'd rather see shareholders put their money into it um, pri- in private sector and make money or not. What worries me is that we end up with a, another set of stampeding white elephants, and that's not a good idea question
1: over here. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Keith Tyler here. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about market concentration, if I may. Um, the Liddell closure strikes me as an opportunity for other players to um, in, increase their share of the game, um, but in some quarters it's being portrayed as somehow um, AGL obliga- AGL's obligation to replace like with like. So the question of the, the entire panel is is AGL under an obligation to replace Liddell, or is this simply an opportunity for other players to increase their market share?
3: i to go first. So the first thing is I can't say too much about um, Liddell, just given the fact that um, there's the uh, Linter um, uh, offer there and, and, and our board is considering that as it would in due course. What I can say, though, is, is that we've always said that what we would like to see is the neg drive a market response to any gap for any power station closure so i certainly think that it's not a foregone conclusion that agl builds uh, replacement energy and capacity and i know that there's plenty of other private sector proponents that have proposals in new south wales to do things so again to support what kerry was saying that's why we need um, a policy like the neg because it provides that market signal um, so that you get the, the most appropriate form of investment um, uh, to replace whatever it is, whether it's Liddell or one of those other power plants that are coming out of the market over the next 20 years.
4: And remember, it was the ACCC who argued very strongly against AGL being allowed to buy those businesses in the first place. And so the idea that AGL has a right or an obligation to replace them is extraordinary. Tim's absolutely right. I mean, AGL's not saying they, they've got some exclusive right. What seems to be an extraordinary vote of no confidence in its own policy is for the government to say, we've got this policy that's going to deliver dispatchable, reliable, affordable power. Oh, by the way, we want these guys to do something completely different, separate from that. It just seems to be a, if you believe your own policy, then let it play out and you'll get the right answer.
3: Good Tony said that. I didn't. (laughs) And what did Kerry say?
2: Got anything to add.
0: (laughs) Question over here.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Martin Thomas, uh, by way of background, a member of the Switkowski report uh, 12 years ago, Uh, there's been a lot of talk about all the technologies you could imagine tonight. The one technology that has been left out and not mentioned is not part of the conversation, is nuclear power. Now, I know it's illegal, and Kerry, you and I have talked about this, uh, and so have I with Tony. Uh, I know it's illegal, but that's only a paperwork. But why with... A technology which uh, has been shown to re- reliably meet all three of the reliability uh, affordability and sustainability criteria why is it not included in the conversation
0: well I think that's um, definitely a matter of uh, politics uh, and uh, I don't think that's likely to change in the foreseeable future uh, does anybody want to comment or not
4: I, I have one comment Martin and that is that um, it could change. I mean, we, you know, there was a, things changed both ways, and I think that in 2011, um, there was proposed to be a debate at the ALP federal conference about whether or not ALP policy around nuclear energy should change, and then Fukushima happened, and that, and that's, that was the end of that conversation. Um, I don't think there'll be ever a debate in Australia about large-scale nuclear, which is the current version. They only come in one size, which is really big and really expensive. There are lots of alternatives that are being talked about and maybe they'll come to in the same way that the Chinese drove down the cost of solar by manufacturing in very large scale in very large plants in replication rather than having one-off bespoke nuclear plants. If you saw a situation where those technologies described as small modular reactors, 50, 100 megawatts really came down the price curve and the sort of numbers that Ziggy was talking about back when you were involved with that, that may start to change and maybe people's perception of it. If it turns out that it turns out to be really hard, in Australia to have uh, a balance of uh, pumps, hydro storage and batteries that balances wind and solar for cities like Sydney and Melbourne, there may have to be a plan B. And I don't know of any other plan Bs at the moment. So I think that conversation could change, but right now I don't see it changing for the foreseeable future because of the other baggage that nuclear carries. I
0: saw another question up there from the lady in the back there.
2: Yeah, my question is, um, business was calling for certainty to to create investment. Um, we couldn't have an rep that was different from the two parties. We couldn't have Labor saying 41,000 was okay, 41,000 megawatts or whatever, and um, Coalition saying 33 was okay. It had to be the same, yet all of a sudden with the neck, we can have, Oh yeah, coalition can put a really low one, and Labor can just change it. How, how doesn't this affect the the um, the certainty that businesses need, the investments need? Um, it's not just um, there are several um, answers to that. It's not just the Commonwealth target for emissions intensity. Uh, that will play into the reliability obligation it's also what the states are doing and it's important that constitutionally the Commonwealth um, has jurisdiction here because of the Paris Agreement so um, any changes um, to what the Commonwealth Government does has to be in line with what they've signed internationally they don't have jurisdiction otherwise um, under our Constitution Um, but the other thing that's going on is that the states can do whatever they want in energy policy in their, within their jurisdiction. They've agreed to set up a long time ago the national electricity market, so they have a set of rules and, and um, basically under the NEG, the likely agreement is that if a state wants to run a renewable energy policy that's different from another state, it can do that. Um, The thing that brings certainty is that there's a mechanism that allows industry to see what is likely to happen with different changes. So it's not a complete unknown about whether we're suddenly going to get a carbon price or a clean energy target or something else. Mm -hmm. So there's a mechanism there that everybody can work within.
0: Tim, if, if, for example, there was a Labor government... Um, probably next year, and they said, "Oh, no, we're going to 45% renewables by 2030, um, or was re- reductions as well, uh, greater emissions reductions." Would that how would that change your investment plans, given it lo- the need for long-term investment?
3: Uh, look, I think that the the difference between say now and during the RET debate is that at the time of the RET debate, say during the Warburton review, there were there were voices out there saying, no, just repeal the thing, get rid of it. And so you were you were going from a position of being out here to having voices saying, well, no, let's get rid of it entirely. And that was what created the the investor anxiety. I guess looking on the bright side of where we are today, we know now that the minimum we are heading for is 26 to 28. So that's the minimum. You've got bipartisan support that that is the minimum. So we know that that's where we're headed. Now, to the extent that the dial gets turned up, in the future, where it would become problematic again is is that if one party, post, turning up the dial, has another party say, "Well, we're actually going to turn it right back down again," and you have three or four years of, "Well, we're going to argue what the, the minimum level is again." So, to to me, the most important thing is is that the minimum level results in a direct in a in a. I guess it gives directional certainty around the type of investment that you should be making. And at the moment, we know that because of the Economic factors that Kerry and Tony were talking about. People are going to keep building renewables because they're the cheapest form of energy. The question is: Is how much do they speed up that investment and retire some of those other power stations ahead of that time frame that Kerry talked about because of that increase in target?
0: All right. Now I've got time for one last question. I'm afraid only. Uh, the gentleman, there.
3: Uh, Good day, uh, Rob Co. Here uh, uh, in my capacity as a private citizen. Uh, I should probably declare that I work for an organisation called Morgan Stanley. Um, So my question's about the design of the reliability um, guarantee and, um, um, you know, we've got a process diagram at this point and I appreciate we'll get more detail in due course, but I guess just interested in the panel's thoughts on how the um, system could be gamed and one scenario that kind of um, occurs to me is that if you're a smaller retailer you may be uh, less likely to have, have um, signed enough contracts. And by the time it gets to you to pay for the polar, um, you may not lo- may longer be there. so there's a bit of a moral hazard problem with compliance. Of course, AGO would always be compliant with its uh, obligations.
2: Kerry? Exactly the sort of issue that the smaller retailers have been raising with us um, and which we're now got some technical working group working through. Um, And it does um, really get down to transparency around contracting, I think. Um, And um, Tony was relatively optimistic about finding a way through. I think that the industry will find a way through this. Um, It won't be perfect, but it'll be um, fair enough, I think.
0: And Tim, heaven forbid the AGL should ever game the system. So are you uh, confident that this will will, uh, be avoided?
3: Well, if you think through it logically, I think some of the concerns that people have been raising is that um, it's a legitimate strategy by, say, a smaller retailer not to be 100% hedged. And so therefore, you get to this situation of, well, how will they demonstrate compliance? But by definition, on the other side of that transaction, it's sometimes in a generator's interest not to be 100% hedged. So the only time that this will ever be a problem is if at the point of triggering, there's just not enough generation um, to provide contracts of any type, whether they be internal within a vertically integrated entity or through a derivatives market or through other some t- other type of market that that may or that may be created in the future. So I don't necessarily see it as a huge issue to be overcome because as long as that generation is there and it's in aggregate sense, its unhedged position matches the unhedged position on aggregate on the retail side. There's a natural buyer and seller there to sort that out so that by the time the ESB says, post this event, show us what's going on, everyone fronts up and says, yes, it's all under control. It doesn't remove the risk though, of that generation not being there. And I think that's the beauty of the way, I'm, I can't remember who described it this way, but the NEG being basically a great big stick that says, you really do need to comply with this because it's cheaper to comply with it and not have it triggered than to not comply with it and have it triggered.
0: Tony, last word?
4: Well, I think that would be where I'd see it as well. I mean, I think the, the trick here is that the nature of electricity and reliability needs, we're going to need some more understanding of this, Rob, I think, because just take the emissions side of it. If you, If a, if a retailer fails to meet their emissions obligation, they can make it up next year, tomorrow, whatever, right? If we fail to keep the lights on, you can't have the lights turn brightly, more brightly tomorrow to make up for the fact they went out today. <laughs> it didn't quite work that way, so there is a really interesting question here. Can you provide the appropriate, if you don't want the regulator, if you, the more you have the regulator sitting there threatening to intervene in this market, the less you'll have a market, the less you have the confidence that's going to work, then you're going to have potentially problems. So a lot of this is going to come down to confidence in this process, not only in the market design itself, but even in the role of the ACCC. Because if AGL is screwing the small players, the ACCC has a responsibility to step in if they're behaving badly. And I don't think AGL has a problem with that particularly, because they're probably worried about other people screwing them at the same time, right? So you've still got to have that. You can't, this is a, comp- that's a competition problem. Um, but there is this question of how do you then think about that, that those potential shortfalls. And you know, the idea that a retailer can have all their customers signed up and not made sure they can actually meet their customers' demands on a particular day, seems to be an extraordinary claim, and that's what some of the retailers are almost saying, that we just wash our hands of this, right? That's because that's the way the market works today. The way the market works today, if there's a problem, emo basically fills the gap and charges everybody, regardless of who caused the problem. Under this arrangement, those who caused the problem will pay for it. Whether that compliance regime causes them to avoid, therefore, that problem is going to be the big test.
0: Well, it'll be very interesting if we have a discussion like this at this time next year, uh, how far we've progressed, <laughs> or if we're miserable or happy. Uh, anyway, I'd like you to join me in thanking our, our panel for a great discussion tonight.
4: And can I, um, can I also um, thank Jennifer. We've, uh, on several occasions now, the last few years, Jennifer has been gracious to, to moderate these things. She does a lot of preparation. She does an extraordinarily good job, and she does penetrate some of the issues. Um, I'd also like to thank the State Library, with whom we've got a very strong relationship for, for allowing us to use this this uh, venue. The people from Grattan, including Megan, is here tonight who helped organise it, and our other partner. This is the first time we've done uh, a Sydney-based func- uh, event with our uh, MEI, Melbourne Energy Institute partner in our future uh, energy systems uh, arrangements, uh, Michael Breer. So thank you all very much indeed.